welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 22, Lightning Action by Captain Nemo. Without getting up, we looked in the direction of the forest. My hand stopped halfway to my mouth, while Ned's, of course, was at his lips. A stone doesn't fall from the sky, said Kinsei. When it does, it's called a meteorite. Just then, a second stone, carefully aimed, knocked a juicy pigeon leg out of Kinsei's hand, giving added weight to his remark. We sprang to our feet, raised our rifles, and prepared to face any attack that might be forthcoming. Could they be monkeys? exclaimed Ned Land. Or something on that order, replied Kinsei. Savages! Back to the boat! I cried, backing toward the sea. Indeed, the time had come to beat a retreat, for a score of savages, armed with bows and slings, had appeared on the edge of a thicket, scarcely a hundred paces to our right. Our boat was beached about twenty yards away. The savages were advancing with caution, but there was no doubt about their hostility. Stones and arrows rained about us. Ned Land had no intention of abandoning his provisions, and despite the imminence of danger, did not retreat until he had slung his pig over one shoulder and the kangaroos over the other. In two minutes, we were at the shore. To load the boat with provisions and arms, push it out to sea, and pick up the two oars was the work of a moment. We were scarcely more than two cables lengths away when a hundred savages, screaming and gesticulating, waded into the water up to their waists. I glanced at the Nautilus to see whether the appearance of these natives had brought out any of the crew onto the platform. Not a sign. The huge craft lay motionless and silent without a sign of life. Twenty minutes later we were climbing on board. The panels were open. After mooring the dinghy we went down into the interior of the Nautilus. The sound of music greeted my ears when I entered the saloon. Captain Nemo was at his organ in a mood of musical reverie. Captain! I exclaimed. He did not hear me. Captain, I repeated, nudging him gently out of his reverie. Startled, he turned around. Ah, it is you, Professor, he said. Did you have a successful hunt? Did you find any botanical specimens? Yes, we did, Captain, I replied. But unfortunately, we also brought back a crowd of bipeds who seemed to be getting uncomfortably close. Bipeds? What do you mean? Savages, Captain. Savages, replied Captain Nemo, not without a touch of irony. Are you astonished, Monsieur le Professeur, that having set foot on land, you discovered savages? Is there a land that isn't infested with them? But, Monsieur le Professeur, are these people whom you call savages worse than those on any land? But, Captain, all I can say, Monsieur, is that they are to be found everywhere. Well, I replied, unless you want to entertain them on board the Nautilus, you would do well to take some precautions. Be reassured, Professeur, there is nothing to be concerned about. But there are many of them. How many did you count? A hundred, at least. Monsieur Aranax, replied Captain Nemo, whose fingers had wandered back to the organ keys. If all the natives of Papua were gathered on the beach ready to attack, the Nautilus would still have nothing to fear. As the captain's fingers ran nimbly over the keyboard, I noticed he was touching only the black keys, which gave his music an essentially Scottish flavor. Soon, lost in musical reverie, he had forgotten my presence, and I made no attempt to disturb him. I went back on the platform. Night had fallen. In this low latitude, the sun sets suddenly. There is no twilight. The island of Guborar was scarcely visible. 
Numerous fires ablaze on the beach indicated that the natives had no intention of leaving. I remained on the platform a few hours all alone. At times I thought of those natives without any fear, however, for the captain's unshakable confidence was contagious, and at times, forgetting the natives, I was charmed by the splendor of the tropical night. My thoughts brought back memories of France, where those same stars would be shining in a few hours. The rays of the moon shone brilliantly in the midst of the constellations of the zenith. Then the thought struck me that the day after the morrow, this obliging satellite would reappear, raise these waves, and extricate the Nautilus from her bed of coral. Toward midnight, everything was calm beneath the trees on the shore and on the dusky surface of the water. I returned to my cabin and fell into a peaceful slumber. The night passed without incident. Probably the Papuans were frightened at the sight of that monster aground in the bay, for the hatches had been left open and they could easily have entered the Nautilus. At six o'clock in the morning on the 8th of January, I returned to the platform. The shadows of morning were disappearing and as, as the mist lifted, the shores and the peaks of the island became visible. The natives were still there, more numerous than the day before, five or six hundred perhaps. Some of them, taking advantage of the low tide, appeared on the crests of the coral reefs, less than two cables' lengths from the Nautilus. I could see them clearly. They were a fine breed of Papuans, built like athletes with high, broad foreheads, noses large but not flat, and white teeth. Their woolly hair, tinted red, stood out in sharp contrast against those black bodies which glistened like those of Nubians. From the lobes of their ears, pierced and distended, hung strings of beads made of bone. Most were naked. I saw women among them wearing crinolines of grass from their hips to their knees, held by belts made of vegetable plants. Some chiefs were wearing crescents and collars around their necks made of red and white beads. Nearly all were armed with bows, arrows, and shields, and carried over their shoulders something resembling a net filled with round stones which they shoot from their slings with great skill. One of the chiefs had come close enough to the Nautilus to examine it with care. He must have been a mado of high rank, for he was draped with a mat of banana leaves indented around the edges and painted in bright colors. I could easily have shot that native, who was once a short distance away, but I thought it better to wait until their actions became really hostile. There is a tacit agreement between Europeans and savages. Europeans may retaliate, but do not attack. During the period of low tide, the natives prowled about the Nautilus, but they were not troublesome. I could hear the word Asai repeated at frequent intervals, and by their gestures I understood that they were inviting me to come ashore. However, I thought it best to decline their invitation. The dinghy made no trip that day, which was much to the displeasure of Master Land, who was anxious to complete his supply of provisions. Instead, the skillful Canadian spent his time preparing the meats and various flowers he had brought back from the island of Guboror. At about eleven o'clock in the morning, when the coral reefs began to disappear beneath the rising tide, the natives returned to land. I noticed that their numbers had increased considerably on the beach. Probably they were coming from neighboring islands or from the mainland of Papua. However, I had not yet seen a single native canoe. Having nothing better to do, I thought it might be a good idea to drag a net through these beautiful clear waters in which shells, zoophytes, and pelagian plants were clearly visible. This was the last day that the Nautilus would spend in the area, provided she was refloated at high tide the following day, as Captain Nemo had predicted. I summoned Conseil, who brought me a light fishing net similar to those used for oysters. What about those savages? Conseil asked me. If Monsieur doesn't mind me saying so, they look rather harmless to me. Nevertheless, my lad, they are cannibals. One can be a cannibal and be respectable, 
replied Kinsei, just as one can be greedy about food and yet be a good man. One does not exclude the other. Quite right, Kinsei, I agree with you. They are respectable cannibals who devour their prisoners with decency. However, since I don't particularly want to be devoured, even with decency, I intend to be on my guard, especially since the captain of the Nautilus is not taking any precautions. And now to work. For two hours we concentrated on fishing, but without bringing up anything unusual. The net was filled with Midas ears, millennians, harps, and the most beautiful hammer shells I had ever seen. We also brought up holothurians, pearl oysters, and a dozen little turtles, which we saved for this ship's galley. But at a moment when I least expected it, I laid my hands on something most unusual, a malformation of nature, something extremely rare. Kinsei had just drawn his net, filled with a variety of ordinary shells, when suddenly he saw my hands plunge, pull out a shell, heard a conchiferous sound, which, that is, the most piercing sound that a human throat can emit. Well, well, what has Monsieur got there? asked Conseil in amazement. Has Monsieur been bitten? No, no, my lad, but I would have willingly given a finger for this find. What find? This shell, I said, holding up the object of my triumph. But that's only an olive porphyry, genus Oliva, order of Pectobranchia, class of gastropods, division of mollusks. Yes, of course, Conseil, but instead of being curled from right to left, this olive shell is curled from left. To write. Is that possible? exclaimed Kinsei. Yes, my lad, this is a left-handed shell. A left-handed shell, repeated Kinsei, full of excitement. Just look at the spiral. Oh, monsieur should believe me, said Kinsei, taking the precious shell with a trembling hand. I have never felt so thrilled. Indeed, this was something to be thrilled about. It is well-known fact, as naturalists will tell you, that right-handedness is a law of nature. The stars and their satellites, as they move and rotate about the heavens, revolve from right to left. And consequently, the things he creates, such as staircases, locks, watch springs, etc., are so contrived as to function from right to left. Nature has generally followed the same law in rolling up her shells. All of them, with rare exceptions, form right-handed spirals, and when, by chance, one turns out to be a left-handed collector's will pay its weight in gold to possess it. Kinsei and I were deep in thought, fascinated by our find. I was thrilled at the thought of adding this precious object to the museum's exhibits. Kinsei was holding the rare specimen in his open hand when a stone from the sling of a native struck and shattered it. I uttered a cry of anguish. Kinsei snatched up my gun and drew a bead on the savage who was aiming his sling about ten yards away. I wanted to stop Kinsei, but he fired and the shot broke a bracelet of amulets on the native's arm. Kinsei! I cried. Kinsei! Doesn't Monsieur realize that the cannibal attacked us? A shell is not worth the life of a man, I told him. The knave! cried Kinsei. I'd rather he had broken my shoulder than that shell. Kinsei meant what he said. But I did not agree with him. The situation had changed during the last few minutes without our being aware of it. There was now about twenty canoes surrounding the Nautilus. These canoes, made of hollow tree trunks, long, narrow, moved quickly and smoothly, and were balanced by means of long bamboo pontoons which floated on the water. They were adroitly steered by half-naked paddlers, and with some anxiety I saw these canoes coming toward us. Obviously, these Papuans had already had encounters with Europeans and were acquainted with their vessels, but this long iron cylinder lying in the bay without masts or funnels was evidently perplexing to them. 
Clearly, they were somewhat afraid, for up to now they had kept at a respectful distance. However, seeing it motionless, they began to gain confidence, and were now trying to find out more about it. This was exactly what we had to prevent them from doing. Our weapons, which were noiseless, were not likely to have any great effect on these natives, who only respect noisy firearms. If there was no thunder, men could have little fear of lightning, although the danger is in the lightning, not in the thunder. As the canoes came closer to the Nautilus, a shower of arrows struck the hull. "'Heavens! It's hailing!' exclaimed Kinsei. "'Perhaps the hailstones are poisonous!' "'We must inform Captain Nemo,' I cried, slipping down through the hatch. I made my way to the saloon, but found no one there. I ventured to knock at the door that opened in the captain's room. I was answered by a come-in.' I entered. Captain Nemo was poring over what looked like an algebraic problem, in which X and other algebraic signs abounded. "'Am I disturbing you?' I asked politely. "'I am afraid you are, Monsieur Aranax,' Captain replied. "'But I imagine you have a good reason for wanting to see me.' "'Very serious indeed. We are surrounded by native canoes. In a few minutes we shall certainly be attacked by several hundred savages.' "'I see,' said Captain Nemo calmly. "'So they have come with their canoes, have they?' "'Yes, sir.' Well, monsieur, all we have to do is close the hatches. Quite so. I was just coming to tell you. Nothing simpler, I assure you, said Captain Nemo, and pressed a button. He proceeded to issue an order to the control post. Well, that is that, he said after a moment's pause. The dinghy is back in place, and the hatches are closed. You don't think for one moment that these gentlemen can pierce a hole that your cannonballs could not pierce, do you? No, but there is one other danger. What is that? Tomorrow. When we have to open the hatches to take in a fresh supply of air, quite right, monsieur, our ship does breathe like the cetaceans. Well, if at that moment the platform is occupied by the natives, I do not see how you will prevent them from getting in. Do you mean, professor, that you expect these Papuans to board the Nautilus? I am sure of it. Well, monsieur, let them try. I see no reason to try and stop them. After all, these Papuans are poor little devils. I do not want my visit to the island of Gubar to cost the life of any one of those unfortunate people. I decided to withdraw, but Captain Nemo bade me stay and invited me to sit down and chat with him. He questioned me with interest about our excursion ashore and our hunt. He found it difficult to understand the need for meat that obsessed the Canadian. The conversation touched on other subjects, and Captain Nemo, although not particularly communicative, was extremely amiable. Among other things, we talked about the position of the Nautilus, which had run aground on the strait where Dumont d'Urville had almost perished. On this subject, the captain said, He was one of your really great sailors and one of your most intelligent navigators. He is the Captain Cook of the French, an unlucky scientist. Imagine an expert, an experienced navigator like him, who has braved the icebergs of the South Pole, the coral reefs of Oceania, and the cannibals of the Pacific perishing miserably in a railway accident. Imagine what this dynamic man must have thought if indeed he was able to think at all during the last moments of his life. Imagine what his final thoughts must have been. When he spoke like this, Captain Nemo seemed strangely moved, and I considered this much to, to his credit. Then, chart in hand, he returned to the subject of the French navigator, his voyages around the globe, his two attempts to reach the South Pole, which led to the discovery of Adele land and Louis-Philippe land, and his hydrographic surveys of the main islands in Oceania. "'What your d'Urville did to the surface of the water,' Captain Nemo told me, "'I have done in the ocean depths, more easily and more completely than he. The astrolabe and the zele were continually buffeted by hurricanes, while the Nautilus has the advantage of being a peaceful laboratory, situated motionless in calm waters. 
However, Captain, I said, there is one point of resemblance between the corvettes of Dumont d'Urville and the Nautilus. And what is that, Monsieur? The Nautilus has also run aground. The Nautilus, Monsieur le Professeur, replied Captain Nemo coldly, has not run aground. The Nautilus is built to lie on the seabed in the back-breaking work and difficult maneuvers imposed on Durville in refloating his corvettes do not concern me at all. The astrolabe and the zele almost sank, but my Nautilus is in no such danger. Tomorrow, on the day, and at the appointed hour, the tide will gently raise her, and she will resume her voyage through the seas. Captain, I said, I do not doubt. Tomorrow, Captain Nemo continued getting up, at 2.40 in the afternoon, the Nautilus will be afloat and will leave the Torres Strait without mishap. These words were spoken very curtly, and Captain Nemo bowed slightly as he finished. I was obviously being dismissed, and I returned to my room. Conseil was there. He wanted to know what had happened in my interview with the captain. My lad, I said, when I told him that his Nautilus was threatened by Papuans, all I got from the captain was sarcasm. All I want to say is, have confidence in him, and have a good peaceful sleep. Monsieur has no need of my services? No, thank you, my friend. Tell me, what is Ned Land doing? I hope Monsieur won't mind me saying so, replied Conseil, but our friend Ned is preparing a kangaroo pie that is going to be delicious. Left alone, I decided to go to bed, but I didn't. I slept badly. I could hear deafening cries and the footsteps of the savages walking up and down on the platform above. The night went by. The crew did not stir from their habitual calm. They were as worried about the presence of the cannibals as soldiers in a fort would be by ants crawling all over their fortifications. At six o'clock in the morning I got up. The hatches had not yet been opened, nor had the supply of air been renewed, but the tanks, which had been filled in case of emergency, were discharging oxygen into the stale atmosphere on board. I worked in my room until midday without seeing Captain Nemo even for a moment. The crew did not seem to be making any preparations to move off. I waited a little longer and then went to the saloon. The clock said half past two. In ten minutes, the tide would be at its highest, and unless Captain Nemo had miscalculated, the Nautilus would be freed from her predicament. Otherwise, months would go by before she could leave her coral bed. However, I soon began to feel significant vibrations and heard the hull scraping the coral bed. At 2.35, Captain Nemo came into the saloon. "'We are ready to leave,' he said. "'Ah,' was all I could say. "'I have given orders to open the hatches. "'What about the Papuans?' "'The Papuans,' replied Captain Nemo with a slight shrug of his shoulders. "'Will they not invade the Nautilus?' "'How?' "'By coming in through the open hatches. "'Monsieur Aranax,' Captain Nemo replied calmly. "'It is not so simple to enter through the hatches of the Nautilus, "'even when they are open.' "'I stared at the captain. "'You do not understand me?' he asked. "'I'm afraid I do not.' "'Well, come with me, and you will see,' went out to the central staircase. There, Ned Land and Conseil, who were very intrigued, stood watching some members of the crew opening the hatches, while furious yells and fearful cries were heard from the outside. The panels opened outward, and immediately we saw a score of terrible-looking faces peeping in, but the first savage to put his hand on the rail of the staircase was thrown backward by some strange and invisible force, and ran away with an awful scream and weird contortions.' Ten of his companions followed, and all met the same fate. Conseil was beside himself with pleasure, while Ned Land, carried away by his impulsive nature, leapt to the stairs, but as soon as he grasped the railing with his two hands, he, too, was thrown back. "'Ah, thousand devils!' he exclaimed. "'I've been struck by lightning!' That cleared up the mystery for me. The railing, connected with the ship's electric power, could be electrified up to the platform. Anyone touching it received an electric shock. 
which could be fatal if Captain Nemo wished it to be so. He had an electric barrier between him and an assailant, a barrier no one could cross with impunity. Meanwhile, the Papuans had beaten a retreat, frightened out of their wits, while we, who couldn't help see the funny side, consoled and massaged the unfortunate Ned Land, who was cursing as one possessed. At that moment, the Nautilus, lifted up by the last undulating waves of the rising tide, left her coral bed on the fortieth minute of the hour, at the exact time fixed by the captain. Her propeller threshed the water slowly and majestically. Then she gradually picked up speed, and sailing smoothly on the surface of the ocean, left the dangerous Torres Strait safe and sound. Questions to consider after reading. Savage's attack. Ned saves the spoils of the hunt. Was that wise? What are Ned's motivations? Nemo conjectures that savages are on every continent. What does he mean by this, and do you think he is correct? Professor Aranax finds a left-handed shell. Why is that so interesting to him and can say? What happened to it? Nemo wasn't worried about the natives invading his ship. His calm was maddening to Aranax. Why was Nemo so confident? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.